Hello, listeners. This is Emmett. I'm here with John, and we've got our first guest ever, uh, who is now back with us, Canada Mike. And today is our 2020 postmortem. We're going to get into supply chains, vaccines, managerial psychology, just-in-time logistics, all sorts of stuff today. But first, I want to talk about an idea that my wife has been hounding me about talking about in my podcast, and that is her idea for a podcast called What Time Is It?, where people talk about what time it is for an allotted amount of time until it's over. (laughs) And why won't we? start doing what time is it uh so what time is it were you guys gents <laughs> I, it's, it's 11 10 a.m for me it's, here we, we we got 2 10 in the afternoon okay yeah, right. same here yeah you guys are on the east yeah so okay now she can stop bugging me about it <laughs> i pointed out i was just like yeah but it'll never be the time it is that the people are listening to it she's like that's the point your episode immediately becomes an artifact <laughs> fair enough she's like it's an archive of what time it is there we go i was like damn i don't really have anything to say to that it's also raining here just you know for archival purposes what weather Uh, is it yeah yeah sunny and like a cool 55 fahrenheit yeah did you guys come here for a fucking fire episode this is how it starts Okay, so I think we should just start with like first impressions of the year. I'll jump in first. I don't remember what the first two months of 2020 were like. It's like they just got lopped off. Then when this all broke out, you know, I wrote a couple pieces as the virus was starting to spread. And I was being tasked with looking at supply chain stuff for my job. I've talked about this on the episode on the show several times, but to me, what was revealing about this year was that if you paid close attention, you started to develop some sense of history. And that's what changed for me this year, is that in a way that I have difficulty describing, I started to feel woven into a tapestry of history. Because I realized in ways that if you live an American life, I have not lived a super comfortable life my whole life, but comfortable enough that it was hard to tell which decisions and consequences I was living downstream from. But the way this year shook out, that became impossible to ignore. And so easier to understand, easier to feel, and that jarred me out of the sort of default mode of disregard for posterity and all sorts of other things that we've talked about on this show. For me, it gave me a sense of um, civic duty that is more palpable, more forceful than before, because when you start to realize that you really do live somewhere, you start to want to take responsibility for it, for it to be better than it already is and to hand that down. So that was the big shift for me this year. What about you guys? That's, that sounds right to me. I mean, my, my general feeling was, you know, history's back, baby. The, the kind of interesting thing to me about watching the responses to the uh, election and people's kind of, you know, like, 
there's this this very strong desire it seems to me particularly on the liberal you know left quote unquote to just like return to normalcy return to the end of history right and to just be like look this is the politics of all of these people of all of the trump voters do not matter anymore and you know they matter for those four years and now we can just sweep that under the rug and the end of history is back the bush clinton obama hegemonic uh, approach to empire is back and we can just like kind of resume life as normal and to me, I mean, that just seems like totally insane, right? Like that's the 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 opposite of what you or what I got from this year, anyway. So, yeah, just posting pics of Francis Fukuyama being like, "Feel like pure shit, just want him back." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I remember. I feel like I heard about the coming crisis pretty early because. I know people from China, so I was getting the like WeChat stuff earlier. And once you saw what was taking place and what was happening, it felt like I forget what movie it was, like maybe 2012, one of those disaster movies where the trailer for it was just a Buddhist monk, like running up to the top of a tower and ringing a bell as like a huge tidal wave is just like coming down over the monastery, which is on a mountain, you know, like over the mountaintop about to erase it. And I just like felt like that, but it was a familiar feeling to me. I felt it like a lot of times in the past, thinking about different like far away crises maybe. And what was interesting, it kind of ties into the Lash stuff a little bit, like the idea that people are living in this life where they've heavily abstracted away a lot of like basic stuff from we'll say the world around them. I think like what Mike's saying, like everyone just wants to return to normal, but normal is like living in a world where you're not often intruded upon by like negative external forces, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit in this episode, but just realizing that like people rather than cope with what was about to happen and sort of like take some action to forestall the worst consequences, like you just saw that that was not going to happen because they weren't capable of dealing with like something bad. Like they weren't capable of meeting that any longer. And that's something I had felt before, but this made it so much more immediate because it wasn't like, Oh, people aren't going to be able to handle peak oil. People aren't going to be able to handle climate crisis 2060 because like that day hasn't really come in a lot of ways, but this day like came soon thereafter. And like our response has been as bad as anyone could have imagined it would be. Um, and that was sort of like, I don't know, crazy to behold. Yeah. I mean, watching, you know, the U.S. government basically just turn BlackRock into the Fed in response to a pandemic was probably one of the most ins- insane and instructive things I've witnessed in my adult life. Yeah. Because you realized, you know, it's just something I ended up writing about. It was a profound moment of clarity for me because... You know, a long time ago, somebody had told me, you never rise to the occasion, you default to your basic training. And once you internalize that, then it's easy to answer, like, why can't we just do the Defense Production Act? Why can't we just do like a new deal again or whatever? It's like, well, because things aren't trained to do that anymore. 
Yeah. That's not really the shape of politics or how those things work. I mean, that's what's so wild about America is that the Cold War ended up defining so much of its institutions and how all this works. And then the war on terror exacerbated that. But our memory is if those things never happened and we live in the more, frankly, democratic world of like, you know, pre-1970 or whatever it is. or it, But all this stuff had been under assault since like the late 40s. It just accelerates after a certain period of time. The, the BlackRock development really is pretty astonishing. And I mean, you, you see people adjusting to it now where they're saying like, okay, well, actually, if you think about it, BlackRock creates this huge point of leverage for regulation in the economy because they own everything. Right. So they have an interest in not allowing all of the companies that they own a portion of to pursue their profit uh, motive in an unrestricted way. So like maybe we can like get some kind of climate, you know, and BlackRock is already doing these these sorts of things, telling polluting industries that they need to clean up their act in order to you know, maintain the level of investment that BlackRock has with them or, or, you know, be included in future indices, which will exclude, you know, unethical um, businesses or whatever. And it seems like, like that's really probably the only practical means that we have, we, you know, quote unquote, or that anyone has to regulate entire sectors at once anymore, which is just like totally unheard of unprecedented doesn't make any sense you know undemocratic but it's where we are yeah it's it's truly oligarchic yeah truly this year confirmed for me that like it wasn't a mistake to spend more of my time reading the ancients than anyone else because the governmental types that they lay out are still the ones we're dealing with yeah like this is a rearticulation of oligarchy hard to argue with yeah. yeah, and that's 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 what this this look like looks like, you know. So I think one of the things that we should spend some time talking about is that another thing that came out of this year was learning how things work. I had this moment where I was like, I don't understand how my MacBook went from being an order online to being processed to being made and then shipped and then mailed and then dropped off at my front door to where it is now sitting in my lap. I was like, that process is a mystery. It's just like credit card go brr and then it arrives. Yep. So this year has been crazy in terms of that, right? Because it became clear. I mean, dude, that Larry Summers tweet. I, there is nothing I love, I've loved more this year than Larry Summers tweeting, how come if we're the wealthiest country in the world, we can't make masks? <laughs> yeah. Being hmm. like, yeah, dude, great question. <laughs> I wonder who might be responsible <laughs> for that reality, you know? What a guy, what a guy. Uh, I, I think, you know, being being getting uh, acquainted with some of the, the sort of biophysical realities that underlie the activities of our civilization is 
definitely maybe a, a benefit of this year. I think a, a lot of people are way more attuned to the idea that like, you know, maybe not everything is going to be there all the time for them in a, in a store, in a grocery store, in a convenient, you know, place that they can access at a low price. That, which was just kind of the assumption of everyone who had, you know, a little bit of money in the West was that like, you, you, there's never going to be a situation where you can't get what you need. I mean, it was just like almost inconceivable. And, you know, indeed for the, for the kind of like zooming class, like the people in the suburbs who can order everything on Amazon, they never really had like serious interruptions to, you know, the kinds of things that they, they needed and wanted. I, I think that's actually one other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the extent to which the preferences and desires of that class of people precedes policy with regard to the pandemic and that it seems to me you know I, I saw some interesting data sets I want to track down again about like restaurant attendance because restaurant attendance went way down long before the lockdowns were actually U.S. so it was you know it seems clear to me that like there's this whole social dynamic that's happening where the people who can insulate themselves from these problems are doing so and they're pursuing these kinds of personal practices which then get enshrined as like okay this is like best practices like public health uh, practice to do like lockdowns or whatever and and then you know like six months later you have like melinda gates saying like well we we didn't foresee any of the economic consequences of closing all the businesses you know, it's just like, yeah that a, quote was totally nuts uh, very very strange so you, you you see also this kind of weird like impingement on policy and politics of um basically like the fear response of a class of people to having these disruptions occur which is very interesting the guy who writes the poll request whose name i'm always forgetting i think it's like antonio garcia martinez or something like that uh but he has he had a he did like a little poll on his twitter where because he works in Silicon Valley, he was like, you know, has your life gotten better or worse since that? And like a lot of people that follow him were like, it's gotten better. And he was like, yeah, see, like that's bad. <laughs> 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 you know, like that's not, there's a huge disconnect here yeah. between these groups of people. I mean, Mike, when we were chatting a few weeks ago, you said the worst thing about this year was that the comfortable people became convinced that everything's okay. Yeah. Like Which is astounding. You know, yeah. it's astounding to watch happen. And the first lockdown, I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, we didn't know what it was like. It's, it just seemed like a necessary precaution. And, and China was completely freaking out, right? I mean, you or at least allegedly, like you had all those videos of like trucks driving down the street, spraying some kind of gas into the street. So at that time, it seemed like, yeah, we should probably do this. Right? They were like right. welding people into their homes, et cetera. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean it was be... getting cask of Amontillado'd into their little like... <laughs> Uh, other countries sort of did this to like great effect, we can say, but they started with travel bans. Yeah. Um, that probably even to more effect than the lockdown, who knows. But yeah. places like Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, etc. So they're having resurgences now, but they've been living life almost as normal while we've kind of been moving from crisis to crisis, fire to fire. Whether or not that's reproducible in the U.S. at scale, like, who knows? Like, maybe it never was, but we definitely kind of went half in, half out on just about everything we did. 
that is the story of this year is going half in half out no real decision making no real leadership you know i mean it's amazing to me that andrew cuomo published a book on leadership in the COVID crisis before it was over and when we entered the summer and so numbers went down and now of course new york is popping off it's I mean, they're and they're juking the stats. Like every state is doing that. Florida just like kicked in that woman's door or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I don't yeah, know a ton right. about that story. Um, it's crazy to me. And okay, so here's here's a way to like understand the trajectory of the year, right? So we have the first lockdown, and we have this big panic about like why can't we make ventilators, masks, etc. That's the first time I start seeing the phrase supply chains in anything except for business material yeah, and like stuff I've read about like economic planning. That's the yeah. first time I start seeing stuff in, in the everyday news. And there seems to be this disconnect where people are like, well, supply chains are a problem, but we need to be able to make this, but we can't do like hard nationalism or whatever. And it's like, okay, like you can't have all of this. Yeah. Like you're going to have to like pick some. And the other thing is like, there are a couple reasons like why you just, can't do oh we'll just like do our temporary command economy like we did in world war ii or the depression or whatever i mean first of all we never did it that way that's just not how that went down those were always public private partnerships that has made america unique because at some level uh even though that seems less and less the case now we're still largely ungovernable as a people Um, yeah like the biggest names in business were like in charge of that, not the biggest names in government. Yeah, yep. because we won, the New Dealers got to spin it in the way that they wanted to. Okay, so there's that, right? And a lot of this is around things like masks and ventilators. And then you start looking into it, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger sees what happens to Katrina when he's governor of California. And he says, okay, I'm going to invest in huge stockpiles. And then, of course, um, Jerry California Uber Alice Brown comes in and cuts all funding for stewardship of that sort of stuff, sells a lot of it off. Nobody knows where it is. And then California ends up being totally fucked, you know? So there's a lack of prudent governance type of thing happening here. And then there's also some boneheaded stuff. I read this thing in Reuters that was like all of the ventilators, like not all, but a lot of the ones that we bought, like just don't actually help for COVID. Like, that's just not it. And then a ProPublica piece about how, like, all the shit we bought from Philips was, like, way overpriced and cost us half a billion dollars. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so there seems to be, like, no one who actually gives a shit that's, like, making any decisions here. And also there are just structural conditions to where it's impossible to give a shit. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's that's all true. And, you know, I mean, there might even be a further complication where the kinds of things that we think we need those ideas are being seeded and inculcated by um, personnel who maybe don't actually know. Like, in other words, they haven't done any kind of analysis of what would be the most effective uh, investment uh, as a response. So that, you know, for instance, in, in Germany, ventilator use for COVID is now quite rare because they find that it makes things worse. Like if you have a hypoxic patient come in and they're calling them like happy hypoxics now, um, like the traditional response was, okay, this person has low oxygen. They need to be ventilated before they die. Right. And now it's kind of like, well, just leave them. They're okay. As long as they can, you know, eat and talk, they're fine. They'll recover. 
And it's entirely possible that, you know, a large number of the deaths uh, in places like Italy were due to this kind of reflexive ingrained response where it's like, just get all these patients on ventilators and then they weren't coming out of commas, you know, so it's very difficult even to be certain, uh, you know, whether or not this was the the appropriate response to begin with, right? And, you know, I mean, you can't necessarily fault clinicians for that. It's not really their job to do these kinds of like large scale tech, but whose job is it, right? Because it doesn't yeah. seem like it's anyone's. <laughs> That's, I was just like, God damn, like everybody's been telling me that the experts have been running shit for so long and like right. none of them fucking know anything. Right, or, or their knowledge is so siloed and so specific and so conditioned on their self-interest that it's irrelevant that they're an expert because what they're really doing is telling you, you know, what their particular occupational classes preferences are. Yeah. It reminds me so much of when we were talking before about like the basic function of the suburb being basically to make sure that the world stays out of sight in so many ways. Yeah. Like if you live in a suburb, you don't have to see a lot of things, even though your living conditions are really contingent upon the fact that like five miles that way, there's a place where the cops don't go a cordon sanitaire around that like area so that nothing comes out into where you, but so these things are all set up so that you live a life in which you don't see a lot of things. And I was thinking so much, I was just reading about a bunch of plagues in like pre-modern Korea and the bodies are piled like sky high outside of the city gates And it's like, yeah, if that was what you had to look at every day, you'd have a much different impression of the world you lived in than the one you have where like nothing has changed. Walmart is still packed. Like nothing about your world is different. There's just like an invisible thing is happening and people in the media are telling you about it. And so you're, I like the word siloed because I think even like regular people are somewhat siloed in this condition where the only way they can get access to like what the world around them is like is from the media and the people who like dominate the media narratives or like feed you what you're supposed to know are these exact people who are basically, we could say maybe uncharitably somewhat or entirely operating on their like class self-interest. And so if you're not fully equipped to like look into things all the time and pull apart what you're hearing and look into it yourself and try and figure out what's going on, all you can do is just sort of be fed stuff that you're then supposed to regurgitate as like the mass. And then that becomes public opinion, you know, pretty classic stuff. But like, once you look at it from the outside, it just seems like this completely deranged feedback loop. Uh, well, especially because the presidential election was going, I mean, True. yeah, th- that's amazing that this happened during an election year in the U S I just, yeah, I, it, it's hard for me to fully process the gravity of that because I think it would have been a lot different in literally, even in a, you know, um, midterm, it would have been yeah, a yeah. lot different. And so there's this moment where we're all like, well, maybe we can just jetpack back to the thirties and like renegotiate all of these structures, even though that's not how anything works anymore. And it isn't even, it didn't even work then how we think it does now. And this idea that there was going to be any sort of real state leadership or something like that for doing it. And also like the fact that people just can't really get real with the pragmatics. Here's a good example. The travel bans that we talked about earlier. I remember everybody was like, Trump is racist for doing the travel bans. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? 
like you're racist for doing a travel ban from a hot country, zone. from a hot zone from the country of origin of this thing like what does that even mean like also all those papers and stuff were you know being like coronavirus isn't that big a deal don't worry about it yeah you know for a while so the the rate at which things got memory hold or like weren't part of it i mean it was changing every single day i mean that's you know not to say that the trump admin handled anything correctly which they didn't i mean the governors like trying to outbid each other for masks is one of the most tragic things i've seen to be honest like that's is such a failure to run a society at a mass scale so everybody was basically begging for these like miracle cures right now uh they're begging for the actual cure which is the vaccine but everybody seems to have forgotten the basic lessons at the beginning of the outbreak which is that uh these things don't just pop out of the ether and into your doctor's office right is there is in fact a whole process. So Mike, I was wondering, I know that you have a lot of technical expertise on this or at least some knowledge about it. If you could sort of like walk us through what the problems are gonna be like stem to stern with the vaccine. Sure, so um, I put together uh, a few notes because this is uh, something that we were, we were talking about um, really over the last week. And this is, this is something that started to become apparent to me that manufacturing supply chain issues are going to be a significant problem in the biopharmaceutical space. Probably a couple of years ago when I started to hear a lot about single-use systems. And so I kind of, I wanted to talk to you guys about single-use systems. I think this is, this is something that's really interesting in this context. You know, I know for this, this podcast, we want to have kind of a, a long view and I think we can treat this as a specific instance of um, thinking about technological suites. So we can think of a society as having uh, a technological suite, uh, which comprises the whole range of like physical capital, manufacturing processes, logistical methods, engineering practices, scientific discourses, that whole structure, which is available to that society to produce goods or do whatever it needs to do. And so technological suites change over time, obviously. And, you know, the thing I think that we don't necessarily appreciate is that that often happens as a result of the actions of small number of actors. Like we're talking about a few managers can really change the way that technology works in our society because of these, because of corporate structures, basically. So that is significant to us if we're taking a long view, because, you know, if we know anything about history, we know that in some cases, parts of these technological suites can just become totally inaccessible for millennia, right? Like Roman concrete doesn't come back until like recently, if at all. I mean, people think they've characterized it now, but obviously even like very sophisticated, successive societies don't necessarily have access to things that are, have been lost, that practices that have, are no longer practiced, right? And so, you know, these, these issues are kind of like almost intrinsically political, Um, you know, even though they're always justified with uh, these kinds of like apolitical scientific or engineering rationales, right? So um, climate change, like energy politics is a good example, right? So people are always making these kinds of like dispassionate arguments about changes to the sector, uh, the energy generation sector that 
rely on basically like engineering arguments, but really what we're doing is having this kind of like agonistic triage between subsectors of which of these parts of these, uh, this technological suite are gonna fall away because something's gonna fall away in the face of climate change. The question is, is how do we mediate that? And um, you know, what are the processes? What are the political and managerial and other kinds? But that's a, that's a very sort of like public example and you know, single-use systems are, are an example of something that has been almost totally under the radar. Um, I mean, I don't know if you were, if you were able to find any uh, sort of like news articles or anything talking about this. Like I, I really, aside from the technical literature, I didn't see. Very yeah, much. I only really saw technical stuff. So maybe we should do like what a single-use system is and then go into like the problems we have now. Because sure. I was like, I wasn't even used to that language when you sent me the couple things we had about it. Yeah, so we, we can start like right at the, the beginning. I mean, basically, in general, what we're talking about is, is bioprocesses. So those are the methods that um, we use to obtain the metabolic products of some organism that we're raising in culture. So typically microorganisms. So obviously, like these processes are as old as humanity itself, right? We have fermentation from the beginning of uh, civilization, and it's still fermentations that really make up the vast majority of, of bioprocesses. So uh, one thing that we should mention here, um, uh, we have kind of an interest in the way that uh, regional um, economies have different technological and engineering expertises and different kinds of ideas about the way those things should go. And so zymergy, which is the, the art of fermentation, differs very widely uh, across the globe. So for instance, um, Japan has a very different bioprocess industry, which actually arises mostly from the discovery of glutamate or MSG uh, in Japan in 1908 uh, for the food industry. So they have like this entire amino acid production industry that we don't have at all. Um, so this is, this is, these are global industries, but at the same time, they're very regional. And there are very few firms that are doing any given process. So structurally, we have this kind of uh, siloing and, and fragility of these, these processes. And, you know, historical contingency and path dependency are big, important forces here. So when we're talking about medicines, I mean, not all medicines are produced by bioprocesses, right? Like the majority of medicine comes from petroleum derived feedstocks. And so like the total estimated global market size sales for pharmaceuticals is about uh, one and a quarter trillion US dollars. And so maybe 300 billion of that approximately is biopharmaceuticals specifically. So the, the products of these bioprocesses of fermentations and other. So that'll include like vaccines and stuff like that. Exactly. But, you know, that biopharmaceutical segment is expanding extremely rapidly. A very rapidly growing segment of that 300 billion is also now being produced using single use systems. So there is definitely a technological suite kind of reconfiguration happening here. And that's being led in the main by major um, transnational pharmaceutical main. Right, so a single use system is basically just going to be, I mean, for a shorthand, we might call it like disposable versus reusable. That's right. That's, like that's single it. use just means disposable. You use it, 
it that's just done means now. disposable yeah, yeah. so let's uh, just mention something about the the vaccines and then we'll talk about like what kind of capital goes into bioprocesses but um so vaccines themselves are actually like really not that important to most pharmaceutical companies so maybe 50 of the 300 billion of of um those uh, biopharmaceuticals are vaccines and like that's basically just because of administration right like drugs you sell to someone over and over and over they always continue to take it a vaccine, a good vaccine, you sell once, right? Or maybe two doses. So as Chris Rock said, there ain't no money in the cure. That's it. That's the, it's, it's literally like, and, and because they have to be administered widely, they have to be cheap, right? You, you're not talking about a sick person who's desperate. It's a prophylactic medicine. Everyone needs to be taking it. The dose doses need to be cheap. So they're not big money makers. COVID is a big exception to this, right? And there's two reasons for that. So the, the flu vaccine is by far the most, or flu vaccines are by far the, the largest profit centers in the vaccine uh, market. Okay, so like about eight of the 50 billion uh, in, in vaccine sales are flu alone. And that's because they have to be repeatedly administered, right? So the, the vaccine companies love flu vaccines and COVID is going to be similar, okay? COVID is not going to be a one and done vaccine. People are going to need minimally boosters and most likely it's going to be a, a flu type situation where you need a, a shot every four, six, if you're lucky, nine months. Okay, so this is, this is potentially an enormous profit center and this is, this is like the top level of development right now. These are the premier development programs. All of the effort is going into them. All of the new technology is going into them, which means single-use systems. So the vast majority of these COVID development projects, um, and the, the COVID market could be enormous. It, it depends on what vaccines uh, end up being used and what their dosing schedules are. But that entire market is really being dominated by single-use processes right now. So that's why these are important in general and to COVID specifically. Okay, yeah, so it, uh, single use is, is about disposability, right? So traditional bioprocesses, if, if you're conducting, if you're doing anything at scale, so like more than 500 liters, let's say 100 gallons, 125 gallons, um, in like any industrial plant up to maybe 10 years ago, you would have been using a big stainless steel fermenter. Okay, so if you've, if you've seen a brewery, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you have a big cylindrical vessel. It's got um, hard piped uh, stainless lines that come into it for water, for gas, for whatever else you need in there. They're big pieces of fixed capital. I'm just um, thinking about the, you know, there's a cutaway to Mo eating breakfast in The Simpsons and he's eating from a, a bowl of penicillios. <laughs> <laughs> and and there is big overlap between the the pharmaceutical and and food um, bioprocessing space. So, yeah, you you often see these kinds of uh, shared technologies. So particularly in this traditional kind of mode, right? So the the basic concern with designing these instruments is is reliability, right? So you need to control your conditions in order to produce like economically viable yield and also to meet all of the kinds of regulatory requirements that the agencies like the FDA, we can complain about them all we want, but the, the regulations that pharmaceutical manufacturers have to meet are fairly stringent for. So it's all about uh, reliable, consistent production. 
Um, and the design of these vessels are basically revolve around process sterility, probably more than anything else. Like what matters is that when you, so the typical mode of production is, is batches, right? So you load the, fer the fermenter with a batch of media, um, which is, contains all of the nutrients for your microorganism. And then you let the, the microorganism ferment through that batch, or alternatively you feed during the, the batch fermentation, and then you harvest at the end. And in between batches, so that process might take anywhere from like a day to you know a week, depending on, on the product. But between fermentations, you need to completely sterilize all of the equipment. And that has to be done in a, in a very thorough way in order to you know, produce like, let's say a vaccine. If you're injecting something, it has to be perfect, right? Like you- yeah, There's you zero margin for error. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the legal liability associated with this is so large that it's just like, you know, they don't screw around with that stuff at all. So the, probably the major design constraint is, is sterilization. Um, and so like the, the vessel has to be sterilized. All of the hard lines that go into it have to be sterilized. The media that you're feeding the bugs or the, the culture has to be sterilized. The air has to be sterilized. Like this is, that's, probably the central problem in the design of these instruments and the design of the facilities. Um, so if you have a whole bunch of these like fixed pieces of capital, right, you have a collection of stainless vessels that are going to be repeatedly used to grow similar cultures um, in these hard piped installations, you basically want to sterilize them in one go with steam. So the, the most convenient way to, to do this is to site them all of these vessels together, have all of the, the pipes, the vessels, everything accessible to a superheated steam system. Okay, and so that is usually called sterilize in place or SIP. And so disposable systems are really the alternative to this. So SIP, I mean, the, the reason that you might want an alternative is because you have to generate steam in your manufacturing facility, right? So you, you need all of the associated piping, um, you need all of the equipment. It's extremely energy intensive, it's water intensive. You know, there, there are problems doing this. And ultimately it tends to be one of, if not the major costs of doing a fermentation. So particularly if you uh, have a quick process, you have something that's turning over in a day. If you're doing a, a, a batch a day and you need to sterilize at night between your, your batches, almost all of your process cost is going to be the heat and the water associated with sterilization. So that's... Right. And so to put that in context with the other yeah. things you said, we already have an industry where there is actually not a lot of money to be made. Right. These things need to be done at scale. So yeah. that means that the upfront cost of doing something that is already not very profitable becomes more and more difficult in the, a production system that has zero margin for error. Yeah. So that's, I think a good way to encapsulate the incentives for saying, I want to do single use. Yeah. Suddenly all the overhead is just like gone. Yeah. Essentially. It, it, it's hidden somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Because I think what we're about to get into <laughs> is that for these firms that are like, I want to go single use, what they're really saying is in so much of decentralizing a supply chain issue or something like that, you're saying that's going to be someone else's problem, either up or downstream from me. Yeah. Right. But so you're talking about spreading responsibility across such a wide 
field that no one is particularly noticeably responsible for a high consequence good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's right on. And that's, that's one of the, the significant consequences of this, but you guys can see, I mean, like immediately you see what, what the appeal is, right? Like this, you can feel the business case, right? Like, oh yeah. Like if I presented this at a meeting, people would be really happy. And like, indeed that's, you know, the, the rationale is like, is like, it's tasty, right? Like it's, it's present for, you know, the kind of like business logic that we're used to engaging in this society. And let's say you're building a new facility, right? If you're building a new facility to manufacture a drug, which isn't done all that often, but still happens sometimes now, if you're doing it with traditional stainless uh, fermentation vessels, you're talking about a third of the cost of the facility will be the equipment. And about a sixth of the cost of the facility on top of that is going to be the equipment installation. So this is like really significant capital cost, right? And the other thing is that from a regulatory perspective, a bioprocess, anything that is making a drug particularly has to be locked down for regulators. You're not going to be retooling this stuff in general. Like you're, you're, when you are building your plant, you've already gone to the regulators and told them what your process is going to be. And if you make any changes, it may result in the decertification of your product and you have to go recertify and do all of these things. So this is fixed capital and it's typically customized for the process and it's not fungible. It's not interchangeable. It's not easy to change to another process or anything. You see this, this kind of overall fixed logic um, with the, the there's a clear business case to move into like one and done. And that's what we by and large do, correct? Uh, by, by by one and done, what what do you mean? The disposable process. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the 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 disposability um, is supposed to address basically like all of that stuff, right? Like it's supposed to just kind of like remove all of that stuff. Um, and I there there is a business case. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get into that. Let's let's talk about the yeah, just so- time. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you want to do JIT, JIT now, and then we'll pivot back to what are going to be the material problems with yeah. SUS. Okay, cool. So yeah. let's do just in time. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, bioprocess design in general, like conducted under the same kind of like managerial ideological framework as like broiler chickens in a concentrated feed operation, right? Like this is, these are pretty kind of like, so the, the organism itself is like mostly irrelevant in term in this kind of like conception of processing feedstocks to the metabolic products um like you might select a, an organism for higher productivity but like most of what bioprocess design revolves around is the equipment and optimizing the parameters of the the fermentation uh process and of product recovery so there's there's a lot of emphasis on that kind of like physical or engineering development, uh, even if like actual formal modeling is still pretty rare, but you can see how if we're, if we're focused on like the physical plant and we're focused on the parameters of the process, and this is like very fertile ground for like the automotive organizational ideologies or social technologies, whatever you want to call them of the, you know, 1970s, 1980s coming straight out of Japan, 
to take hold in in the pharmaceutical industry, right? So we we see those um, Japanese influence kind of like automotive production quality control systems uh, spreading really rapidly into the pharmaceutical space. Uh, so like Lean, Six Sigma are still like really common today. Like basically, if you're a if you're a mid tier kind of like manager, you've left the lab and you're now just operating in this like realm of pure abstraction, like pushing paper around, doing PowerPoint presentations. You're probably like a Six Sigma black belt or something like that, right? It's one of the really common complaints across industries is that the people involved in the managerial and supply chain process are totally disconnected from like the actual domain expertise involved in whatever the product is. So they see things pretty much as like interchangeable units that they just need to deal with in some way. And they don't understand how those units plug into the process in a real physical way. Yep. And so if you go on LinkedIn, I'm sure you could figure out what I mean pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, Watching these people talk to each other. Right. It's expertise without expertise. I think one of the, things that clarifies this for me is when we're talking about this, when we're talking about Kanban just in time, or, you know, what are six Sigma, all these things, the way you want to think about it, listener, is if you're totally unfamiliar with these ideas, it's not the idea of, let's say you run Ford automotive in the 1950s, you have stockpiles of everything you need so that you can keep churning out cars. Instead, you don't actually integrate everything into the firm. It's kind of spread out into other contractors and things like that. And the inventory you need arrives with simultaneity at the time you need to make it. So everything is flowing in this allegedly seamless way so that you can keep making cars, but it lowers the cost of having to absorb and maintain and keep an eye on inventory because that is someone else's problem that you contract to do that for you, right? So not it doesn't always work exactly in that way, but I think that's a good layman's general picture for how to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about these logistics industry stuff. And in a really similar way to the single use stuff, there is a lot of reason to do it. There are great business cases to be made for like, this saves us a lot of money and the foreseeable problems are like not that bad. And I think it starts in a more limited domain where it's like, yeah, all my suppliers are like not that far from me and we have really deep relationships. So this works pretty well because I'm Toyota versus my suppliers halfway across the world. They're the only one that exists. And if something happens to them, I'm just not going to think about what I do next, which I feel like is kind of where we're finding ourselves now. Mm -hmm. And there's also a labor thing that went into this, right? You can find people to make this stuff where they can't unionize or fight for wages or stuff like that, which lowers your, you know, upfront costs (laughs) compared to what you're dealing with in a more developed uh, and unionized country. And, and that that can't be neglected in the in the pharmaceutical space. I mean, we sometimes we think about it, maybe it's useful just to to offer a brief sketch. So typically, you know, a, a bioprocess is going to be operated by technicians, and these are people who, you know, like in Canada, it'd be kind of like you're making fifty thousand dollars a year, you have a bachelor's degree, and you're babysitting a sophisticated instrument, and you like, you know are pushing the buttons, right? Like it, it, there's, there are 
that, that's in the R and D space. I don't mean to like denigrate that at all in the R and D space. That's a very uh, skilled position. And in, in industrial affairs, I mean, it's a little bit more monotonous, but it's still, this is high skilled work, but you know, to, to like the upper managers, these are people who it's like, well, couldn't we just automate all this stuff? Like, do we really need these people, you know? And like, can't we just cite a, uh, like a robot plant, like somewhere in the middle of China or something like that, you know? And so, so this is all part of that thinking, right? As, as John said, I mean, many of these people are very disconnected from the actual operations of their firms, particularly from the R and D side. And, you know, I think, probably the actual the supply chain people in these firms even the ones that are not involved in operations nonetheless have been leery to their credit they they have been leery of these technologies and they have been saying this will inevitably result in some problems right and i i think you know uh i sent emmett and and john an article maybe we can kind of post that in the show notes or something mm-hmm. um it'll so, go in the bib we'll try to put as many sources in the yeah, bib as we can yeah and so so that had an interview with a series of supply chain managers from like all of the major kind of uh suppliers in this in this space and you know they're they're optimistic but there's a certain kind of like Mm, you know, there are challenges, you know, and, and when you get that kind of language in like a PR, like front facing, like corporate document, you know, those people think that there are problems, right? If they're willing to say that in public. So I think we've done a good job characterizing like what just in time is, et cetera, et cetera. And we've walked through what like a more centralized, sterilized overnight stainless steel batch process is going to look like. So yeah. single use, we've said, spreads this stuff out over way, but it runs into some of the same problems that we've talked about in terms of local idiosyncrasies and stuff like that. What you need to do this are highly sophisticated plastics that are molded in specific ways by different suppliers all over the world that fit into different regulatory regimes and different local expectations of what these fermentation processes are supposed to be. In other words, none of this is standardized anywhere. And then it's all supposed to be consolidated on site by firms that exist within their own municipalities under their yeah. own regulatory regimes yeah. that have a varied levels of skills and experience in assimilating all of these sophisticated plastics to then put together a vaccine that needs to be put into a cold chain supply system, which keeps it at a regulated, auditable temperature over an extended period of time through different regulatory regimes into specific locales that can then house and distribute the vaccines to the people who need them. And if you're thinking to yourself, listener, that's a lot. That's because it is. When we're talking about how this uh, starts to complicate what would be perhaps a more difficult or upfront or expensive stainless steel reusable, not single use version of this. That's exactly what we're seeing. And then if you put to why are all my Amazon orders late to this, you start to understand or think back to our dumbbells episode. Why can't any of us get dumbbells? Well, they're all made somewhere else. You're starting to see some of the very strange problems that are going to start to arise when Pfizer wants to start rolling this thing out because at first they were like, it's going to be a billion. And then they were like, actually, it's going to be half that. And what we're talking about now is why that is. Yeah. At least this is a significant portion of that. And, and, you know, I mean, so this is interesting because 
This starts with vaccines, okay? So basically, while the just-in-time ideology is kind of spreading in, in the biopharmaceutical industry, uh, both academia and industry are starting to transition to disposable single-use products for handling cell cultures like at the bench, right? At a bench scale, kind of like individual experimenter, like not industrial Like scale. a research context. Like, like a research context, right? So, you know, way back in the day, like you'll still find old fogies who, will, you know, they'll tell you about like they had like uh, pipettes that they would they would pipette like viral cultures by mouth. So it was like, you know, if you screwed up, you get a mouthful of your like media full of, full of uh, the virus or whatever you're growing, right? Like they're just horrible stuff, right? So there's good reasons, obviously, at this scale to go to disposables, right? And that, uh, and particularly in the viral space uh, the um, and the vaccine space, those guys were on single use first. Because like, you know, if you're dealing with viruses, you're dealing with live cells or anything like that, you just, you want to get rid of that, anything associated with that manufacturer and not have to sterilize it. Like the risks are, are higher in that domain than they are for, let's say, like right. material and, and the workload is too much for what you're doing, right? The, it, the workload it starts is to be high. encumbering. The strange thing to note now is that because of this, the ideological kind of interpretation of like what this is like in other words this is something that slots nicely into this just in time kind of framework this has now gone into processes where it's like it's just not necessary like it's not necessary to do bacterial fermentations in single-use systems but the vast majority of new in-development bacterial processes are being designed for single-use systems because people want to have this uh, process flexibility, they they think that's what they're getting. You know, it's not just vaccines, it's everything now. And COVID production pressures are putting pressure on more than one supply chain, in other words, right? Like, and and on on many, many processes at the same time. Right. You so know, just to just to add a little bit of thing. Yeah. So if you guys want to watch or see a quote unquote, cool shipping site. It's splash247.com. Yeah. And they will talk about a lot of this stuff and things that go wrong with tankers and things like that. But it's also important to realize that people who work on these boats are getting COVID all the time. It's so like, yeah. the, it lives there too, like in the process of how these things arrive. Yeah. One, one thing to mention about this is like the idea that these companies had about how this was going to work is very divorced from reality. It was kind of like, we have infinite timelines on this. This is all going to be like robots and like internet of things. Like internet of things is a big kind of topic of discussion within single use systems for reasons I don't understand. Right. It's just like, okay, well let's get the fermenters themselves on the network. And then like the managers can log on from like Paris you know, and like, see, they, they don't do that. They never look at that data. They don't care about the data. So I, I don't know, but like, there, there is this like very highly kind of ideological picture of like what bioprocess future is going to be and single use systems is it. And it's very difficult to dislodge that kind of thing once it takes hold, right? It, particularly when you have this internal prestige associated with projects that are using these technologies. So we should maybe just talk about what COVID is doing now to this. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I, as a person who came into this discussion, didn't know that much about this besides our brief conversations. Yeah. I feel like I have a pretty clear picture of like what the alternatives were, where the industry right. went, 
and like what problems could be. But yeah, if we could like talk about what's going on and maybe extrapolate a little bit even into like what's likely to be going on. Yeah. And I think then it's like, okay, maybe pretty obvious how we aren't seeing like the reality. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the thing that, that Emmett mentioned is really important, right? Like these, you can think of like, okay, instead of having a, a stainless cylinder, I'm going to have a plastic bag, right? Like that's, that's the basic kind of idea, but the, the stainless cylinder has all kinds of penetrations for the various things that you have to actually introduce into the culture. It has a stir, Okay, like everything has to be maintained very homogeneously um, in order for the process to be reliable. So there's a stir. There's the instruments. Okay, so to actually measure the what's going on in the culture, you have like pH meters, you have thermometers, you have whatever like spectroscopy probes, like anything that that they can think of. All of that stuff is now disposable and is built into the plastic bag. So like literally every single one of these has filters, it has stirs, it has the thermometers, it has the pH meters, it has all of those things. And those components are all now single use and disposable, right? So before you'd have as part of your plant capital, like your instruments, your, your measuring devices, and you'd buy those once and you would maintain them and you might replace them in like 10 years or something like that. But now it's like every single time that you do a batch, you have a new instrument. You have a new stirrer, you have a new filter, and you have no guarantee that that is the same material made by the same process with the same properties as the last fermenter that you got from that manufacturer. So do and, they have to recertify like at some specific interval? So no. Okay. Well, this is, this is interesting, right? Like you- Here you, we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you certify on- uh, on a, a process on a fermenter, right? And so you say, okay, I'm using Thermo Fisher's magic plastic bag. And that's the lockdown particular type of plastic membrane that lines the interior. It's the lockdown stir, it's the lockdown filters, it's all of this stuff, right? Now, Thermo Fisher might in six months decide, eh, this membrane's not working out too well for us. We like this other one we're going to notify our clients that we're changing things, right? And they'll give you, you know, maybe a couple months notice or however much they feel they need to give you. Or if it's a small change, they might just not tell you. They might just do it. And so you don't know whether or not your process is like uh, up for uh, some kind of regulatory challenge or not. Yeah, or whether integrity or not... starts to get vague here. Yeah, and there's even if there's no problem with that, even if Thermo Fisher is doing everything that you want, there's still variability associated with their manufacturing process. So before you just had one fermenter, it's not a source of variability in your process. Now you're introducing variability in every single component of the physical capital uh, from batch to batch. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not like auto manufacturing because the suppliers are building the entire system, right? It's, you're not buying like nuts and bolts and like, you know, shafts and machine parts from like tires, small suppliers, yeah. tires from small suppliers that rely on your business. The supplier has the whip hand. Okay. And this, the, the single use probably was mainly driven by supplier considerations because they're tired of building, you know, one plant 
out of stainless and then not having any business for years and years. What they want is to sell for mentors every single batch, right? So that's the idea. The supplier has the whip hand. They're building the entire friggin' thing and they get to decide whether or not your process operates or not. Okay. So that's a significant risk. And this is not theoretical. Okay. This has happened to multiple major manufacturers that they, they were just left out in the cold because the process that, that they thought that they had developed is no longer supported by a supplier. Okay. So that's like a, a really significant kind of risk of this. Right. Um, and, and these are, like if, if you think about it, right, like there was, there was no real logistical risk for operating a, um, a stainless fermenter over time, right? Like you need Buna rubber for the O-rings and seals. You might need to, you know, maintain the measuring instruments, but there's no kind of like literally every one of the components of our production line is now subject to week to week uh supply chain pressures right that's and, and, and yeah and variations i mean this to me i started to realize that i had seen a flowering of the phrase risk manager over the last 20 years or whatever, yeah right because we had decided to make things riskier yeah yeah and and you know i mean you know i think as as uh talib has has correctly pointed out i mean most of these people have no idea how to model risks statistically at all so i i guarantee you that you know like the supply chain guys who are indeed worried about, you know, these kinds of problems in the biopharmaceutical industries. These guys are not doing like sophisticated risk management models. They don't have the, the tools to do that. Um, so they can't really tell you how risky these processes are. Okay, so let's, let's just talk about COVID specifically here because things are getting really crazy, okay? So right now, basically, this, the, so this, the state of this whole industry of the single-use production system suppliers is that these guys are building these things bespoke, on demand, more or less by hand, okay? So you, you have a, a bioprocess that you want to develop. You're going to need some kinds of customizations to your fermenter. You're going to need like different filter sizes than are, what are offered or whatever, right? And you know, the whole idea of like, okay, single use is going to make this stuff like all off the shelf. You just get to pick some components and assemble it together. And you have like a, a pharmaceutical factory that didn't pan out. That didn't work out at all. So each one of these, you know, plastic bags with all these complicated parts in it is custom manufactured. And they, they, before the pandemic, um, parts had a lead time, maybe of, you know, a month or two. So with typically within two months, you would get your parts and that's like copable for process development, regulatory timelines, like that kind of thing. And it means that like, you know, R&D can basically do their jobs. Now, what's happened with COVID is that everyone and their dog has a COVID vaccine program. Okay. And we're not even talking about production pressures here. Nobody has really scaled up a plant so that it's like producing, you know, billions of vaccines. The the pressure on single-use systems that came solely out of everyone and their dog researching a COVID vaccine is such that you cannot get components at all for single-use process development that is not related to COVID because they're, they're uh, prioritizing COVID, right? So there, it's probably the case that at least some of the COVID vaccine 
programs are actually shams or like kind of industrial espionage programs to actually just like be able to get components to operate existing single use processes. But like as of right now, basically what suppliers will tell you is 12 weeks best case. And for many parts, like no date. Like we have no idea when we'll be able to get this to you. And the, the 12 weeks is like, that's the number to tell your boss. Like in, in reality, like you may never get these parts. Like we just have no idea. So that that's from research pressures alone. No like major scaled up production. We do not have the production to deal with people researching COVID vaccines. Mental. Much less, yeah, like start manufacturing them for use, much less start right. manufacturing them for use every three, six, nine months by exactly. every citizen of the whole globe. Exactly. Do, right. Do you exactly. think it'll be possible to do, like, it almost sounds to me like there's no way to do this on single use, like that will just have to be abandoned if you want to do something at this scale. Does that I, seem true? I mean, if it, it, it d depends on timelines, like if, if we're talking like the, what they want to do right now and what they're talking about is like, you know, maybe kind of like Marshall Plan type, like build outs of bioprocess plastics facilities and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't I don't know how so the people making the single use components are going to have to be built out so that you can then build out the people using the single use components so that you can then build out the vaccine. That's amazing. Because well, yeah, of course you right. would, because of course you would, because none it, of this stuff is meant. It's meant for research context. It, that's that's it basically like it's, it's meant for research context and like it may have some applicability you know there may be a good case for doing it like let's say in dubai right you need to make a vaccine in dubai okay well you don't have a lot of water you know like maybe energy mm -hmm. costs are, are high whatever um but or or like let's say you're only doing like a, a small run of this you just can't afford the fixed cost uh fixed capital costs right yeah. maybe maybe a small bespoke run of a of a high value recombinant protein or something like that. It might make sense. But what, what has actually happened is that this technology, which vaccines are kind of like antibiotics for us, right? Like we don't do sanitation. We don't do cleanliness. We don't do this kind of stuff. What we do is the drug techno solution and vaccines are the drug techno solution for the pandemic. And the way that we have set up that technological suite is so that we cannot produce them at the required scale period. Like as of right now, cannot be done. We'll take at least a few years to scale up all of that stuff. And that's, that's like, do, do you really think these people are competent enough to, to get that done, right? To, to on a transnational scale, coordinate the scale up of single use components, deal with all of the resulting logistical issues, right? Like they can't even get empty containers back from China now, right? Like there's so many pro supply chain problems that are just like, totally basic and yeah, things are bottlenecking in the Los Angeles port right now, right. like in a bad way. Right. It's like and not good. If you have anything perishable, yeah. it's a huge, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And, and there are, there are no stockpiles of any of these components, like because of just in time, to, as we just, just said, nobody stockpiles anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They're all built to order. They're all custom, you know, and, and you want to do that at a huge scale and have it just in time. Like, I mean, it's just, I think what John said is true. You know, like what one of these things has to go, right? Like the there some something is gonna give here, and you can't have sovereignty and um just in time and you know secure supply chains and all of these things to get it's it's you're not gonna get it, right? Yeah, not unless you have an empire. 
and those are hard to maintain. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, yeah. I liked the way of looking at it is about like technology suites. Like there's an overall suite and then there's like sub suites or whatever. And yeah. sometimes you can't maintain all of the ones that you might have. And one might have to be maintained and one might need to be let go of, or at least like scaled up or down. And these are decisions that are going to affect maybe like the future of at least everyone in your area, maybe everyone in the world for who knows how long, because you don't really know the consequences of keeping or letting go of a process, um, some kind of technology, some kind of technical expertise. So you're like these decisions, uh, you could say, well, maybe not the gravest possible are definitely grave and have consequences for like posterity that are pretty intense. And one would really need to come to terms with that to be able to like make well such a decision. And I think what we kind of just covered, but maybe it would be interesting if we had a minute to talk about and kind of wind it down with is that the people, the people involved in making these decisions, it's kind of been a running theme of this podcast that they don't have an eye to posterity because that's just sort of like an endemic feature of our society. It's kind of like we just made like the case for these processes and technologies is that they'll save you money right now. And that is basically always a winner, no matter what. I'll save you money right now wins. And that's the case for society seems to be something that will take care of itself. No one has to take responsibility for the long time horizon, which is potentially forever of human society. Yeah. Right. Instead, it's all these like weird stop gaps. And there's this idea that it will somehow like fractalize into something durable and enduring. But that's there's no reason to believe that. Yeah, there, there really isn't. And, you know, I mean, these, these are products where, you know, like why why is Bill Gates uh, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation so dominant in the vaccine space? You know, and it's because basically our idea is, well, if it's important, then the market will take care of it. The market's not going to take care of it, right? You know, the the whatever you want to say about Bill Gates or whatever, at, at least he is providing funding for vaccines and products that are just like not commercially viable. He at least has this idea that some kinds of technologies are not going to be safeguarded by the market. And so he as a billionaire oligarch says, okay, well, I'll do it then. But, you know, obviously that that doesn't work for other kinds of reasons. You know, he has a very myopic focus on particular technologies. He has other kinds of interests that make him a problem. But, you know, that's, that's where we've uh, left ourselves is that, you know, we have all kinds of technologies which are not being taken care of by the market. And the only people who have the power to do anything about them are the Bill Gateses and the, you know, the BlackRock CEO Fink or whatever. You know, these, these are the people who, who could maybe exert some overall pressure on the industry. But otherwise, you just have this kind of entropic, like, you know, the PowerPoint brigades are convincing themselves of something right like they they get an idea in their head and they give each other presentations over and over and then it's like yeah yeah just in time single use like let's do this This all of our processes are going to be like this this is high tech internet of things whatever and there's there's no check right there's there's if people say okay but there might be a problem with robustness right we might deprive uh the market in general of a product it's not a it's not a rationale that the business can can address. No, absolutely. I not. can hear the crickets. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that we talk about all the time. Like, what's the Silicon Valley motto? First, break all the rules, or move fast and break things. Yeah. And the way that that 
variant of the California ideology has become so dominant, you know, I don't want people to get it twisted. It's not like there was this idea and then it spread like a plague and now everyone has it. The way it worked was there were things that became convenient for business over time because of certain incentives and breakdowns in society that allowed for these types of economies to grow because, as we said, they were good for business. And in the smithy of figuring out how to do that, ideologies were created, improvised, instigated, that have now spread over time as these things have become dominant. And that's where we are now. So when we say that these problems, once they get installed, are harder and harder to debug, it's because they become entrenched materially first, I would argue. And that's hard to deal with. That's not about winning an argument. That's about something else. You can win the argument and still have the infrastructure fundamentally fuck you over because you can't rework it or it's just against you in the first place. Well, you develop on top of infrastructure, entire groups and classes of people whose livelihoods are tied to the way things have been set up and you will meet continued resistance to any attempt to change that, like at every turn from those people because that's their sort of fiefdom now, more or less. So I think like historically the only time things like that are changed are when there's just like some crazy new autocrat who can just like do it when there's, you know, an Augustus or something. And yeah. He's just or like, yeah, it's, it's bit, all going to be different. Yeah. Or some insane shit like, you know, French revolution, 1917, like it's whatever. not a you good know, time. No, usually. it's an incredibly bad time, you know, to wrap it up. Everything we're talked about went into the theme of the podcast when John and I started it, which is why nothing feels possible. And the reason that we talk about that is because context is lacking everywhere. So we're hoping that this was some valuable ideological and material context to understand what's happened this year and why 2021 is going to be even weirder, because we're going to start running into some of the issues we talk about now. Maybe they won't play out exactly how we think they will or something like that. Life's surprising. But- I think it's fair to say that if you're listening to this and you find any of what we say convincing, one of the things that I would invite you to start doing is to start thinking about the things you see around you and asking them how long they're going to last and who's going to inherit them. Yeah. That's the question I ask myself every day now. You know, how does this work? Who's doing it now? Who's going to do it later? How long do I think it will last? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, if, if I, I was to, to leave people with anything uh, on this, I, I would say, you know, maybe this is, could be a reason for, for hope because we can see the problems, right? And we understand um, how to do these, you know, bioprocess technologies like stainless fermenters. These are, these are not like lost technologies. Um, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there still are opportunities to do this. Um, and, and I think like, even, even if we can't win these arguments at a corporate level, like you're never going to be able to convince a CEO that it's uh, a good idea to prioritize process robustness 
over his flexibility in moving his production facilities from country to country. Yeah. And you especially won't convince the shareholders. Right, right. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not going to happen. At the same time, for things like COVID, where it's an ongoing problem, it's an ongoing kind of like civil, civilizational level challenge, I do think that we are going to see some changes in terms of smaller actors rising to meet these challenges. You know, I, I think people really are starting to grapple with the idea of like, okay, we need to relocalize some of these supply chains. Some of these things have to be done within North America entirely, right? Like just for us to have any sense of like, okay, we can cope with the next pandemic, which could be worse, right? Like, you know, COVID's not the worst case scenario by a long uh, stretch of the imagination. So, you know, there, there is hope for this stuff, but it means we have to pay attention to it. We have to be talking about it and we have to think about it in our daily lives, right? Like how, how can we uh, organize ourselves around these issues? And I think that's a difficult problem, but, you know, if we're aware of them, we at least know that the problem is there. Yeah, I think we're coming out of a time where, well, a lot of this kind of stuff was happening or in its infancy, like the conversations going on in our two countries were about like abortion or something, which not to say yeah. that it's not like an issue, but we had a really narrow focus on a small range of cultural issues from yeah. like the nineties forward in terms of what dominated media led discourse. Meanwhile, a lot of other stuff was happening that like people were not able to involve themselves in, in any kind of way. So that like, if you go to vote for people, this isn't even on the table as like an issue that one side has to have an opinion on and another side has to have another opinion on. It was just like, everyone could agree on it and it could be totally somewhere else away from our minds. But I think at least in this context, like it'll become more and more a thing that you have to talk about. And I won't be surprised to see politicians bring it up now when they start running. Yeah. Um, stuff like America first turning into like, you know, let's bring some of this stuff home for robustness for our jobs for whatever, yeah. like, which would be unimaginable. And, you know, the Clinton days. Or yeah, something. there's a piece that just came out in American Affairs about what a policy regime would look like for that. And I think the Holly Sanders combo for cutting people extra stimulus checks is going to be more and more, if we're lucky, what the future is going to look like. Yeah, you know, so listeners thanks for listening this is our end of the year recap we're going to move into 2021 and try to keep things interesting and insightful for you guys as we have been so far and i want to thank mike for coming on again i think that this was highly informative i would recommend everybody listen to it twice i'm excited that i get to edit it because it means i'll spend a lot of time digesting and listening to it as i'm not sure i caught everything this first time through myself so thank you for spending time with us we will see you next year stay safe out there yeah thanks guys salam